My text this Lord's Day is from Micah, chapter 7, verse 8. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. In the cause of Christ, dear ones, it is very tempting to judge the progress and victory of Christ's kingdom by comparing it to the apparent success of Satan's kingdom. We are tempted to compare the increase of unfaithful churches with the increase of faithful churches and to fret ourselves that we have been forsaken by God or that we are in the wrong camp or that we have invested our lives into a losing cause, or that we have no hope of victory against such mighty adversaries to the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ, the side of heaven. Of course, we can always count on giving way in fear to such temptations when our eyes are more focused on the seeming advance of the enemy than upon the promised victory of Christ. For the Lord does appear to allow his enemies to make great strides in seeing their wicked designs realized. But God, dear ones, brings this to pass so as to teach us to look not in fear at the enemy, but rather to look with confidence to Christ. Just as Elisha did in 2 Kings 6.15. Let me just briefly draw your attention to that passage. There you will recall how the armies of the Syrians had completely surrounded the city where Elisha was dwelling, that of Dothan. And how it says, I'll pick up the context at verse 15, And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, a host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. You see, so often we are again looking at the masses of people around us But we don't have eyes to see the promises of God. We don't have eyes to see how the Lord has sent his hosts to defend us in exactly the same way. God's hosts, his mighty hosts, he is called the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. This is our God. And he sends his armies, 
His fiery angels and chariots to defend us, to protect us. We need the eyes. We need to pray for the eyes to believe and to grab hold of those promises that God has given to us. The Lord also amasses the enemy against his little flock so as to make the fall of the enemy that more conspicuous for all to see, as was true in the case of Pharaoh. In Romans chapter 9, verse 17, there the Lord, speaking through the Apostle Paul, says that there was a reason why God raised up Pharaoh. And this is what the Apostle says. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. We just read Joshua chapter 2 earlier. What did Rahab say was the reason that they feared Israel? That because God had brought to destruction such a mighty foe, even Egypt, that it spread throughout the whole world at that time. They all feared the people of God because of what God had done in raising up this mighty enemy, but then, before all, very conspicuously bringing the enemy to naught. Dear ones, the Lord calls us this day not to fret ourselves because of the success of evildoers but rather to rejoice in the Lord of hosts, for our victory is absolutely certain. I would say that if you want to have a summary, brief summary of the sermon this Lord's Day, you can find it in Psalm 37. Psalm 37, I believe, provides for us and encapsulates the essence and substance of the sermon today. Listen to words from Psalm 37. Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land and verily thou shalt be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Cease from anger, and forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. This is the substance of what Micah is communicating by inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Micah chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. And there are three truths from our text that the faithful remnant of Israel is called to believe and to profess when it appears that they have been overwhelmed by their enemy. These three truths they are called to profess and to believe. First of all, I shall arise. Second, 
I will bear the indignation of the Lord. And thirdly, he will plead my cause. Well, let's consider then the first truth that God's faithful remnant should believe and profess when they are surrounded by their enemies. I shall arise. Consider with me verse 8, Micah chapter 7. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy, when I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. You'll recall the cry of the faithful remnant of Israel in Micah 7.2. The good man is perished out of the earth. That is, the faithful remnant of God's people are so outnumbered by those who are unfaithful that it is difficult to find one who seeks to follow the Lord with all his heart. Dear ones, it is easy to follow the multitude to do evil when the unfaithful are so numerous. But in such times, the Lord calls his remnant to look to him and to follow him even when loved ones are among those who have strayed from the paths of faithfulness and truth. Beginning in Micah 7, verse 8, the prophet begins his concluding remarks to the faithful of Israel. This begins, if you will, the conclusion to the rest of the prophecy of Micah. The final section of this prophecy that God gives to Micah is filled with much consolation and with promises of restoration and victory for God's people. God leaves them with this hope. He doesn't leave them in their anguish. He doesn't leave them in their discomfort, in their tribulation and trial. He leaves them with this message of hope and salvation and consolation. The prophet speaks now on behalf of the faithful remnant within Israel and speaks directly to the various enemies of the Lord, both outside Israel, like the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and all the hostile government that may exist in the world who hate the kingdom of Christ and seek to suppress it and destroy it. And he also speaks to those enemies who work from within Israel, like the unfaithful of Israel, who by their hypocrisy, toleration of sin and error, backsliding from truth and doctrine and worship and practice brought God's judgment upon themselves. You see, the faithful of Israel here declare with confidence in the Lord, rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. In other words, the faithful remnant of the Lord are taught here and to declare those of you who have taunted, maligned, slandered, hindered, oppressed, or persecuted the faithful and standing for the cause of the Lord, it is not a time for you to throw a party when under the hand of the Lord the remnant are reduced in size and when their testimony for the truth seems almost to be totally silenced. It's not a time for you to throw a party. Don't rejoice. Your time is coming. You can be assured of that. Dear ones, when the Lord brings his discipline upon us, 
and allows our enemies to overtake us for a time. Whether our enemy be a besetting sin in our lives, whether it be unfaithful shepherds, whether it be defection from our covenanted obligations, whether it be division and schism within Christ's body, whether it be toleration of sin and error, or whether it be tyrannical civil magistrates, we are at such times tempted to simply throw up our arms in defeat and to say, in effect, if you can't beat them, join them. We're tempted in that direction. Or we're tempted to, at such times, to murmur against the Lord as if the Lord has been unfaithful to his promises to provide for us and to protect us from our enemy. Or we are tempted to declare that the truth requires too much of our lives, too much of a sacrifice from us. But Micah, God's prophet, gives to his people this first truth to cling to with all their hearts and to profess with all their mouths. He says again in Micah 7:8, When I fall, I shall arise. Here is the confidence we have in Jesus Christ, beloved. Although you may fall before your enemies, and though you may even appear to be dead, never to rise again, yet the Lord, who not only can lift up those fallen, but also the Lord who can raise the dead, will by His grace and by His power, He will cause you to triumph over His and your enemies as you patiently wait upon Him and trust Him. The same promise is to the same effect in the remainder of that particular verse, chapter 7, verse 8, when we read these words, When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. Conveying the same truth. Though I'm in darkness now, God will yet shine His light upon me. What a blessed joy in the Lord is ours. What a peace that passes all understanding is ours when we know and can confidently rest in the promise that although the faithful remnant may fall and decrease in numbers to almost nothing, nevertheless, they will again arise in God's good time. They can't be kept down. Those that are faithful will arise, if not in that generation, in a succeeding generation. God will cause His truth to be that which is victorious and those who carry His truth to be victorious. Dear ones, the cause of Jesus Christ which we promote and defend cannot lose. Although the faithful and biblical covenants of our forefathers may be buried and trampled on today, yet will they be raised as a banner to assemble his people again, together as one. Consider the following illustrations of this biblical principle very briefly. First of all, the faithful remnant of Israel appeared to fall, never to rise again when they were led into captivity, into Assyria and into Babylon. 
But the word caused them to rise again, as it were, and he sent them forth from captivity back into the land of Palestine to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple of the Lord. All hope seemed to be gone on the part, at least from, a, from an appearance, from a worldly perspective, looking at the circumstances. The mighty nation of Assyria, the mighty nation of Babylon had scattered them to the four winds. How would puny little Israel, seemingly insignificant Israel, how would they be brought back? Well, God said he would accomplish that and they were raised up again. Though they fell, they were raised up again. Again, we find, by way of illustration, the faithful remnant of Israel again appeared to fall when their numbers were so depleted that the vast majority of Israel fell away from their God and even approved of Christ's crucifixion and persecution of the apostles of Christ. Yet the apostle Paul tells us that the faithful remnant of Israel will become a mighty host when all of Israel will be saved at the outset of the millennium. All of Israel will be saved. God will raise them up again, though they appear to fall. God will cause them to stand by his almighty power. Romans chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. Again, the faithful remnant of the church could hardly be seen when swallowed up within the captivity of the Romish church. They called it the Babylonian, the spiritual Babylonian captivity. But by the grace and power of Christ, the Protestant reformers of the First and Second Reformations arose from ashes to continue the battle against all anti-Christian oppression in the church and in the state. And as we consider the faithful remnant, which are identified as two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, and how they bear testimony against the corruption and tyranny in the church and in the state for 1260 prophetic days or 1260 actual years, and are slain, the scripture says, and they lie in the streets in that condition for three and a half prophetic days or three and a half actual years. This speaks of a fall of the faithful remnant, which is yet to come, yet future to us. We may experience this particular time, the slaying of the witnesses, a time when the faithful testimony for the truth of Jesus Christ will become so hated throughout the world that the world will seek to silence that testimony once and for all. And when they believe they've finally silenced them, they throw a big party. They celebrate throughout the whole world that the faithful two witnesses, the faithful remnant, have been finally put down. They have finally fallen once and for all, never to rise again. But that is not the case, for the Lord Omnipotent will raise his faithful remnant from the dust of the grave by putting that same testimony and to his witnesses who will come in another generation. Just a few years later, God will raise up after the slaying of the witnesses. It will be as if their spirit, it will be as if their testimony will come forth even more gloriously. And those that are raised up to proclaim that testimony will then go forth. And it will be their testimony that leads to the salvation of Israel. 
which leads to the fullness of the Gentiles being brought in. You see how the Lord delights to overturn the designs of the wicked in every way, just when it appears that the faithful testimony of his people has been silenced. The Lord is preparing through that means to cause his testimony to go forth even more gloriously than before. And I would give to each of you, dear ones, this day, by way of a very personal application, when you yourselves appear to have fallen before your enemy, remember the promise of the Lord. When you have fallen into some sin, when you have given in to some particular desire of the flesh, when you have that besetting sin that seems to rule over you and you don't know how to overcome it, remember this promise. When I fall, I shall arise. Remember that the Lord may indeed allow our enemy to overcome us for a time, but for his glory and for our own well-being. That's not to give in. That's no excuse to give in to sin. That's no reason to approve of sin. But when we are brought into that place, remember the word of the Lord. Be encouraged this day, my dear ones. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16 says, For a just man falleth seven times and riseth up again, but the wicked shall fall into mischief. They don't rise again. They fall to their own destruction. Remember as well the promise of the Lord in Psalm 37, verses 23 and 24. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down for the Lord. For the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. Yes, we will fall at times into certain sins, but the Lord will, by His grace, raise us up to renew our faith in Jesus Christ to make us even more committed, more strong to the cause of Christ. Cause us to even more sorrow and grieve over our sin into which we have fallen. And to rejoice again and again in the faithfulness of our Savior who will never let us go. Dear ones, are you in that fallen condition today? Are you overwhelmed by the enemies of your soul? The devil, the world, and the flesh? Take hold of the promise from Christ today. I shall arise. Even as the enemy could not keep Christ under the power of death, so the enemy cannot keep you who trust in Christ with your whole heart under the power of sin. For Christ will deliver you. But I must admonish you. Dear ones, if you would know victory in your life over the enemies of your soul, you must be willing to forsake all those means by which you are tempted and drawn into those sins. If you are serious about overcoming the enemies of your soul, you must at all costs seek to avoid the very temptations that lead you into that compromised position. You can't hardly express your seriousness about overcoming any sin in your life 
while you continue to place yourself in those positions, those situations, those occasions where the enemy can set you up and set before you a snare into which you have fallen a hundred times before. We must be wise and vigilant. If we would truly overcome those besetting sins in our life, we can't simply cry out to God, save me. As long as we are placing ourselves into that compromised position, we must ask God to save us before we get to that place, to give us the grace not even to go that direction, not even to go that path, not even to go that way at all. The second truth, God's faithful remnant here are called to believe and confess when their enemies overwhelm them is this. I will bear the indignation of the Lord. Another truth that they are to remember, God's faithful remnant are to remember, I will bear the indignation of the Lord. Beloved, when we are brought low by some besetting sin, by some physical trial in our body, by some financial setback, by some division in our family, by some division in the church of Jesus Christ, by the loss of a loved one, it is time, dear ones, at that point, it is a time for sincere humiliation before the Lord. It is not a time for self-righteousness wherein we see no fault nor cause at all for the discipline the Lord has brought into our lives as if we were sinless. It is not a time for hopelessness and self-pity as if we were utterly abandoned by the Lord. It is not a time for murmuring and complaining against the rod of God's discipline. It is not a time to allow bitterness and resentment to destroy our lives. Rather, Dear ones, it is a time to proclaim the righteousness of the Lord in all that he does. He is righteous in all his ways, regardless of what he brings into our life. He is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. It is a time, dear ones, to kiss the loving rod of God's discipline. It is a time to grieve and sorrow over our own sins and errors. It is a time to renew our covenant with the Lord our God. It is a time for prayer and fasting. It is a time to be thankful for the many mercies which the Lord has so faithfully poured out upon us in the past, which he presently gives to us in the future, now and the blessings that he will yet bestow upon us in the future. It is a time, finally, dear ones, when we're under the hand of God's discipline, it is a time to look to Christ alone for our eternal salvation, to find in Him our only hope of salvation, our only hope of joy, our only hope of peace and contentment, to turn to Him. It's a time for those things. Here we see in Micah chapter 7, verse 9, these principles taught. Consider with me what Micah 7, 9 says. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he plead my cause. 
and execute judgment for me. He will bring me forth to the light and I shall behold his righteousness. Just the first part of that verse at this point. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Here we see, dear ones, that the faithful remnant of Israel are called to patiently endure the time of God's just indignation brought upon them. When he says in verse 9, I will bear the indignation of the Lord, he doesn't mean that I'll bear it. Well, if I have to bear it, I'll bear it. That's not the attitude that Micah has here. That's not the attitude of the faithful remnant. What is being said here is, I will bear patiently. I will bear in all humility the indignation of the Lord. For the Lord makes no mistakes. The Lord errs in no way. It is by His all-wise counsel that what has come into my life has come there. And so I will bear patiently the indignation of the Lord. Why? He says, because I have sinned against Him. I have sinned against the Lord. That is, even the faithful remnant, dear ones, who are seeking to walk in His ways, yet sin. To say that we, even though we may seek in every way that we know to be faithful to the Lord, that to say that we don't need His discipline is to say that we've reached perfection. That we've reached a state of sinlessness, which is ridiculous, which is vanity and pride and arrogance and blasphemy on our parts. Yes, we all yet need the discipline of the Lord in our lives. No matter how faithful we are, we need God to train us. This is an indication and evidence that God loves us, that we are yet his children. We belong to him. Consider in this vein the prayer of Daniel. The prayer of Daniel. Daniel was, if anyone was, one of the faithful remnant. He's appealed to in Ezekiel as being a very holy and devout man. And yet, we find in his prayer in Daniel chapter 9, verses 3 and 4, when he prays, just about to reach the time in which he has read what Jeremiah says about the return of Israel back to the land, he knows the time is about to occur in which they will be sent back to the land. He enters into a prayer of confession of sin. But does he simply use the idea, they, they, they need your forgiveness, Lord? No. It's we, we, we. Listen, just a, just a couple verses. Daniel chapter 9, verses 3 and 4. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confessions and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. Verse 5 starts off, We have sinned. We have sinned. Beloved, there is no self-justification. There is no self-righteousness in Daniel's prayer. There is no murmuring against the Lord in Daniel's prayer for the discipline. 
which was brought upon him, though being one of the faithful, but yet incurring much of the same discipline, being taken from his home, led into captivity. Yet no murmuring or complaining against the, the Lord's discipline. There is no resentment. There is no bitterness. There is no self-pity. Poor me. Woe is me that, that here I am. I've lived so righteously. And the Lord has brought upon me the judgment which they, which they, were, they deserved. See, there's none of that in Daniel's prayer. There is in this prayer true humiliation. But no self-justification before God. Let me also note before moving on to our last point that God's discipline does not always fall upon us by taking away some material or physical blessing from us. I don't know if you've ever thought of this as being disciplined from the Lord, but in many ways, dear ones, what I'm about to say is a much more severe act of God's discipline. When God gives us the desires of our heart and leads us into prosperity so that our hearts become more hardened in our sin and our indifference to God and walking away from Him. I believe that is a more severe discipline from God for it is much more unlikely that people who go that route will know the Spirit of Christ working in their lives to draw them to repent and turn from their sin. They become so self-absorbed, everything becomes so indifferent to them. They become so comfortable in what is going on in their lives that they don't have any care at all for their spiritual walk with Christ. And dear ones, that as well can be a discipline which God brings into our lives if we're not careful. I would much rather God shake me up and give me various kinds of, of problems, trials in my life so that I am alerted to my sin, so that I can turn from it and avail myself of the mercy of Christ than for God to turn me over and to give to me the, the wicked desires of my own heart. That's indeed a very grave and serious judgment upon the wicked and even very serious discipline for a time that God brings upon his people. God help us to see that that especially is not a discipline that we would incur from the Lord. Thus, dear ones, we must not judge the rightness of our cause merely upon the presence of material prosperity or merely upon the presence of numerical gain. For it is possible to be deceived by such evidences. Consider the outward success of Rome. Consider the outward success of Islam, unfaithful denominations, feminism, humanism, atheism. Consider the outward success and numerical gain of all of that which is false in the world presently. The blessing of the world upon those false teachings. See, the world loves its own, but it despises and hates those who with a whole heart are willing to lay down their lives for the truth of Jesus Christ. Let us endure, therefore, whatever the Lord brings our way, 
whether by way of poverty or prosperity, always pouring contempt upon our own unworthiness. I should say, pouring contempt upon our own worthiness and exalting always Christ's worthiness alone. The last main point, this Lord's Day, that when we are overwhelmed by our enemies, Doans, the Lord would have us to believe and to profess, He will plead my cause. He will plead my cause. Listen to the word of the Lord, chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. I'll begin again at the beginning of verse 9. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he plead my cause and execute judgment for me. He will bring me forth to the light and I shall behold his righteousness. Then she that is mine enemy shall see it and shame shall cover her which said unto me, Where is the Lord thy God? Mine eye shall behold her. Now shall she be trodden down as the mire of the streets. In these words of the prophet, which reflect the words of the faithful remnant of Israel, we hear the final truth that we are to believe and profess when we are overwhelmed by our enemies. The Lord will himself take up the cause of the faithful remnant which is really the Lord's cause as well and he will vindicate them from all the unjust accusations brought against them he will bring forth dear ones the faithful out of darkness and into the light of the noonday for all to see the righteousness and faithfulness of the Lord in defending his people and in granting them victory before their enemies. The Lord will accomplish this. Micah chapter 7 verse 10 tells us how the Lord will accomplish this. Those who have been adversaries to the faithful remnant will see with a clear understanding that the Lord defends and takes up the cause of his little flock of faithful ones. He does so in history. And we've mentioned a few of those examples in history. But he does so ultimately at the last judgment. He will defend and vindicate his people and the cause for which they have stood against all the adversaries who have stood against them. Those adversaries that do not turn to the Lord and take up the same cause for which the faithful remnant have been willing to suffer and die, Micah says, will be trodden down as the mire of the streets. What a precious truth is given to us in the last point here. This truth to which we can cling. As we patiently wait upon the Lord, not giving way, as I said earlier, to self-righteousness and pride. Not giving way to murmuring or complaining. Not giving way to bitterness and resentment. Not giving way to hopelessness or self-pity. The Lord will in his own time vindicate the truthfulness of the cause of the faithful witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a glorious truth to cling to. The Lord will expose the shameful lies of the adversary. The Lord will expose the underhanded methods of scattering the faithful remnant. 
The Lord will expose the hidden conspiracy of those who would lead the faithful astray. For ultimately, dear ones, the cause for which the faithful remnant stand, as I said earlier, is not their own cause, but it is that of Christ their Savior and Lord. You know, we have no need to give in to the various designs and plots and scheming that goes on in the world. You know, they have formed a conspiracy to overthrow the kingdom of Christ in the world. And unfortunately, that happens to varying degrees, even in the church of Jesus Christ. But we have no need to give in to those types of tactics, as if the battle is won by carnal weapons. Dear ones, we need simply be convinced of the truth, the truthfulness of the cause for which we fight and promote and defend. We need simply to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, to seek to be a holy people, to live faithfully to Him and before the world, to seek, dear people of God, not to set a, a, a stone of offense or stumbling before anyone, to walk again in faithfulness to the Lord. The certainty in our hearts that we are promoting and defending the cause of Christ when we stand, for example, for the truth in the Solemn League and Covenant. When we stand for the faithful contendings of the witnesses of Christ. When we stand for the covenanted reformation. When we stand for the purity of worship and singing only psalms without instrumental accompaniment. And without the use of images like crosses or banners or holy days. When we stand for the pure gospel of salvation that pours contempt upon all the pride of man and exalts alone the grace and righteousness of Christ. Certainty of these truths on our part makes people very, very unhappy with us. In fact, the more certain we are of these truths, these truths, the more unhappy people become. But dear ones, one of the things we ought to continuously be praying for, God give me conviction of the truth. Because when you are convinced that you're standing for the cause of Christ, you will stand even in the most desperate of times. The Lord will give you the grace to press on even in the face of great opposition, when you're convinced and you know that that's the truth. This truth, dear ones, comes from God's Word and His Spirit. In conclusion, then, dear ones, I call you by the Word of the Lord. Let us not war, and let not the weapons of our warfare be carnal, fleshly. Let them be that of the Spirit of God to the pulling down of strongholds. Let us speak the truth in love. Let us stand boldly for the truth. Let us love the brethren.
Let us speak forth with all humility what is given to us by the Lord and his apostles. We need never fret nor worry that we shall be ultimately overcome by the adversary when our confidence is sincerely and wholly in the Lord. We need never lower ourselves to engage in battle using the unrighteous methods of the wicked. For the Lord will bring forth our righteousness, that is, our vindication, as the noonday for all to see. He says in Psalm 37, 6. And that is what we see in the faithful historical records of those who have faithfully contended for the truth. As we read them, our hearts rejoice that the vindication of God and showing forth the righteousness of the cause that they stood for. Don't we desire that future generations, those who read of how this generation has stood, this remnant of God's people has stood, don't we desire the future generations to look back and say, there was a people who sought to please the Lord and were willing to suffer even to the, the cost of their own life. And ultimately, as I said earlier, we will be vindicated. We who stand for the truth of Jesus Christ, no matter what opposition we face, will be ultimately vindicated in the courts of heaven. And there, dear ones, there is our great joy that is laid up for us. Even if no court here upon the earth vindicates the cause of Christ, the court of heaven will vindicate those who have faithfully suffered for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fret not thyself because of evildoers. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do praise thee this day. We do glorify thy righteousness and thy faithfulness to thine own cause. We do bless thy most holy name. For, O Lord our God, we do believe that thou hast in thy grace and mercy given to us by truth to defend and promote. And we pray, Father, that, O Lord, thou would help us to be faithful to that truth. Let us not fear what man can do unto us. Let us realize and be convinced of the fact that though we fall, we shall rise again. And let us in the midst, O Father, of thy discipline upon us, let us remember that, that even thy discipline comes righteously upon us, for we have sinned. And, O Lord, let us rest confidently in the fact that we need never worry that the Lord will plead our cause and our case. O Lord, let these truths reign upon our hearts and our minds and cause us be kept in perfect peace. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Of administering the sacrament of baptism to one of our covenant children, by way of the warrant and nature of baptism, I should draw your attention to the fact that the Lord himself commands us to to 
administer the sacrament of baptism to all of those who are a part of the household of faith, all of those who are part of his kingdom, all of those who are part of the visible church of Jesus Christ. The Lord calls his disciples to go forth and to baptize all nations in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. We, we learn from the word of the Lord that baptism, just as circumcision, was not administered to only those who could believe, but to the children of those who did believe. So we see in the new covenant as well that the blessings of the Lord by way of external relationship and the promises made are not only to us but to our children, Peter said on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, verse 39. We see that the Lord was desirous of even blessing, though it is not baptism that is administered in this case, but nevertheless blessing even infants that he held in his hand. In his arms, very small, little children. You see Christ's attitude manifested toward even little children. That they, he says, belong to the kingdom of Christ. These little ones belong to the kingdom of Christ as well. Well, if they belong in the kingdom of Christ, why ought they not to have the sign of that kingdom externally applied unto them? We would say as well that though we believe this is something, a sign and seal that ought to be applied to not only those who profess faith, but to their children as well, we would also profess that we do not entertain any, any delusion that by virtue of the baptism, the administration of the water, that our children are immediately regenerated, that they are immediately cleansed of sin, whether original sin or whether of actual transgressions. We do believe that baptism is a sign and seal of the blessings of the new covenant, which are promised to us and to our children, but they are realized only in the lives of those whom Christ actually draws into himself. It is only realized in the life of those who the Spirit calls and gives faith unto. And so we see that is not only we would not go to one extreme and say that baptism saves our children, but we wouldn't go to the other extreme either and say that it's a mere dedication. We do dedicate our children unto the Lord when we bring them for baptism, but it is more than a mere dedication. The sign and seal of God's covenant is placed upon them. We do view them as members of the church of Jesus Christ. We will treat them as such. And when they are old enough to profess their faith and to acknowledge Jesus Christ and to be interviewed to come to the Lord's table, they have a right to that as well. They have a right to be examined and will be able to enjoy that right at that point in time. By this, the Lord says, we disciple our children in the faith which the Lord has given unto us. <clears throat> this is a time as well, dear ones, inasmuch as many of us have children, it's a time for us to renew our covenant as parents 
to follow in all the ways of the Lord, to set a godly example before our children, to teach, correct, instruct, to love, to admonish our children in all the ways of the Lord. And so as little Rebecca is baptized today, and as you hear John, on behalf of himself and Rachel, answer the questions that are put to them, So each of us should be answering those questions afresh and anew in our own hearts that we will follow these ways, that we will do this as well afresh and anew with our children. But again, I would have you consider not only for the sake of our children, but each of us who have been baptized, it's a time for us to renew our covenant with the Lord, to formally fight against the devil, the world, and the flesh in all of its manifestations in our life, to take up the cause of Christ afresh and anew, to repent and turn from our sins and all unfaithfulness, to take hold of Jesus Christ, for he has purchased for all who trust in him, he has purchased already every benefit, every quality, every characteristic, every virtue that you need in your life as a Christian. Christ has purchased it for you. Lay hold of that by trusting in Christ today. I'd like to invite John and Rachel to come forward at this time. And I will have them to come over here if they would and just stand on this side. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship, 
in which they absurdly exercise themselves, would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.